Naval College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Monday afternoon, September 20, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, assignment number one, taking up the general study of archaeology and beginning with Digging Up the Past by Leonard Woolley. One uh, additional fringe benefit that I expect to help you to is uh, to pick out some of the more interesting books on general and biblical archaeology from the library and bring one or two of them here from time to time to show you what they are. Some of these you may want to take out and look over yourself. Some of them have very fine photographs and pictures far beyond what our textbooks have. And some of them are as fascinating as a Sherlock Holmes detective story. I'll uh, mention two right now and write the title on the board and try to get them in frame next time. One of these is called The Testimony of the Spade by Jeffrey Bibby. I'll write it up in a minute. Now, this is written by a man who wasn't a cubby. And he wasn't a straight Christian of any denomination. And he's an evolutionist and holds a strongly evolutionary view of prehistory, but has some very interesting things in it. One is a photograph of the earliest known citizen of Denmark who was removed from a peat bog and put in an alcohol bottle in the museum in Copenhagen. And uh, this is the... Uh, the exhibit in the museum that attracted more people than anything else. This guy was, uh, when he was found, he was to see peat bog has tannic acid in This preserves uh, wood or human body or anything from decay. And uh, he had a rope around his neck. He'd been hanged. And uh, the scholars speculated whether this was a human sacrifice or a judicial execution. But anyhow, a little leather cap on his head, uh, stitched together out of pieces of, uh, like deer skin or something. You can see the stitches. His clothes are still okay. And the most quizzical expression on his face is if what on earth have I done to be hanged? And this, this the photograph of this. They didn't succeed in preserving the whole body, but they saved his head. And it's in this museum. And this also shows a place in uh, way up far north of Scotland in the Orkney Islands where... Uh, sand had completely covered a Neolithic village or settlement. And this sand, sand dunes shifted from time to time. The sand dunes shifted and left this exposed, just as it had been dated uh, presumably about 2000 B.C., about the time of Abraham in the Bible. And you could see in there a little, they, they got archaeologists there in a hurry to, to, to preserve it, just like it was when it was exposed by the shifting of the sand. And two little beds and a little dresser to put your cosmetics and things on and a little place for a fire. He's got a photo, I'll make a stone. He's got a photograph of that in there. This book is quite fascinating if you can um, <coughs> be uh, alert and mature enough to not simply swallow whole all his evolutionary background about a uh, million two years and all that. The other book is called uh, God's Graves and Scholars. Any of you ever hear of that? But, all right, we'll try to make a stab at covering roughly half of this uh, little book of learned Willie's today. hope you found it interesting, and I'll especially add, hope that you read it. I'm sure you surely did. But anyway, anybody want to confess to not having read it? 
not a course. We're going to have a course on evolution next semester. Some of you may want to take. This will be team taught by Dr. Wing, Dr. Tweed, and myself. Dr. Wing is a theistic evolutionist uh, of a rather mild variety, but uh, he will prevent, present the best case he can make for theistic evolution. And Dr. Tweed and I will undertake to search it out from the philosophical point to Dr. Tweed and the biblical point of view for me. And uh, let me add that there is an increasing body of scientifically respectable literature by competent scientists with PhDs from places like Johns Hopkins that is critical of human evolution. They are not all crackpot books written by fundamentalist preachers. There is an increasing uh, body of material that's critical of, of evolution from a scientific point of view. And I'm gladly I buy these books when they come out. I've got a couple shelves. Let me introduce you to any of you want to see them someday. Now then, uh, why does anybody dig? And why does it take experts to do archaeological digging? And what is the objective of archaeological digging? Mr. Brown, do you have uh, positive opinions on that? Well, I'd say the reason they think it's been discovered uh, about you in the past, they don't have that available records in that library, so they think you find out about All right, now, uh, the difference, um, what would you say, the difference to who wants to comment between a scientist, a true scientific archaeologist, and a, let's say a Van Gogh or a grave robber? All right, what is it? All right. Now I'm going to repeat students' answers briefly on this so they get on the record. All right. The grave uh, robber is looking for treasure. He does not care particularly about the meaning or associations of what he finds. And he's also not too finicky about how he digs to get sort of smash through to where he thinks it is. And the scientific archaeologist is looking for knowledge. The object itself is less important than what it means. And this depends quite a bit on um, its associations or connections. Where was it found and in uh, what level and in connection with what other objects. If it is once uh, detached or removed from this, its value is largely lost. I think this comes up later, but we might just put it in here. The uh, difference between history and prehistory. What's the difference between history and prehistory? Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, all the Indian tribes in North America, north of the Rio Grande River, when Columbus discovered America, had only a prehistory. None of them had real written records. And they were all in the Stone Age. If they had anything made of metal, they, they got it. They didn't make it. And Mexico, of course, had a kind of writing. But um, the absence of written records. You find artifacts, you dig up a grave, you find bones, tools, weapons, objects in there. These have a story to tell, but um, it's only prehistory. You learn something about a uh, culture that has a time span, but um, unless you have written records that will give the 
names of people and the dates that things happened, why it's prehistory, it isn't real history. When you can name particular people and, and the pinpoint particular dates, then you've got real history. Uh, Willie says at one point in this book that um, the uh, palaces of the sea kings of Crete had no written record that anybody could read. This has been true false since then. An English bank clerk named Michael Ventus worked out the linear B script of Crete and deciphered it and proved, contrary to all the experts, he made them all eat humble pie, that it was an early form of Greek. Linear B of Crete. The dreams of it. Um, alphabetic, an early form of Greek. And uh, the archaeologists had hoped for wonderful horizons to be opened up, and this stuff would be finally deciphered. And it turned out to be of no value whatever. It's uh, inventories of stuff in the storeroom. Three jugs of oil. Two chariots. One with uh, one wheel broken. <laughs> and on and on, like this, this kind of thing. Three jugs of wheat. One of them painted green. And uh, so forth. There's a book in the library on uh, documents in Mycenaean Greek with the Cretan linear script, then with the transposed into ordinary Greek letters, then into English Roman letters, and then an English translation. Uh, this is fascinating. The linear A script of Crete hasn't been deciphered yet. This is still a challenge that you can face if you want to someday. Now then, um, the Antioch chalice. Would you call this a, uh, what would you call it, a mistake or a hoax? Well, I think this was popular ignorance, probably, mostly. I don't think it was deliberate fraud. It's uh, ignorance of the kind of, it's an example of the kind of stories that grow up about something in the absence of valid knowledge. Now, this thing is a uh, silver, I believe, a chalice or sort of a goblet, and uh, so big. And uh, some books have a picture of it. This doesn't have a picture, does it? I don't, I don't think so. I, I couldn't find it. But anyhow, it has uh, recognizable figures of Christ and the Twelve Apostles on it. And so immediately the story grew that this was the Holy Grail used by Jesus at the Last Supper. And Antioch, you see, was where the early disciples were first called Christians, if you've had Bible 2 and 2. And Willie um, uh, says, well, does he buy this or does he debunk this? What do you think? Will he agree to this? On what ground does he say you can't believe this? All right, what is it? Yeah, well, also, it was found 100 miles away from Antioch, so it's a little bit of poetic license to call it the Antioch chalice. And there's a style of um, ornamentation or artwork on it. This goes through a regular process, you know. Artwork today is different from what it was 300 years ago, surely. And um, so it's 300 years or more after Christ and quite far from Antioch and therefore while it is a piece of early Christian art all right it certainly is not what Jesus used at the Last Supper which probably wasn't even made of silver at all but anyway uh, this is an example of something misinterpreted by amateurs who were unable to give a valid appraisal of its nature and its connections 
Now, he mentions the barn lion that was bought in a little antique shop in China. Chinese go hog wild over antiques. We saw a store once had a sign up that said, new and old antiques for sale. Genuine, money refunded when otherwise discovered. <laughs> and uh, here are all sorts of stuff. Most of the bronze or brass antiques in China have been melted down to get, make bullets. This is a revolution. But anyway, a little uh, bronze lion. And since it was found in a shop in China, you would naturally suppose to start with it was of Chinese origin. But one scholar said it was Hittite because of a vague resemblance. Then he used this to decide whether other things were Hittite or not. You see easily the, the fault in the methodology of that. This is uh, using the unproved to, to try to, to prove something that uh, you'd have to establish on other evidence. And another one is Rhodesia in uh, southern Africa. Great stone ruins and all sorts of stories have been told about them. The Solomon's mines where he got his gold. It was uh, a whole lot of different things. Let's see, they uh, built by the Phoenicians and so forth. And a worthless scrap of Chinese porcelain, a fragment of a broken dish, worth nothing in itself found in those ruins. But this broken dish was from a definite period of Chinese dish making. And this could be proved. It could be correlated with the, not the other pieces of that same dish, but others like it were of known date from China. And since this was buried in the ruins, it uh, gave a date in the Middle Ages of the Christian era. And therefore, the ruins uh, could be pronounced to be of native African origin after that. Now then, um, number five here. What has been accomplished by digging? What, uh, Mr. Dennison, what have archaeologists accomplished, if anything? It's one of the money, but what have they done? Well, there's several others like this. Uh, Willie says that um, 
We probably know as much or more about Egypt in 1300 B.C. as we do about England in 1300 A.D. Now that may be a little bit exaggerated, but that's a striking statement to bring this out. Now, why do you have to dig to get these things where you can see them? Why does this have to be? Anybody? All right. Yeah. Now, of course, you don't have to dig for everything. Nobody has to dig to get to the pyramids in Egypt. They're sticking up there uh, way up in the air. They're a high-rise affair. And the ziggurats of Mesopotamia, while not as big as the pyramids, are comparable to that. Another exception is grave digging. Of course, you have to dig to get up what's in the grave. This has been deliberately put underground. Is it sacrilegious to dig up the graves of ancient people, put their bones in a museum? Well, would you prefer to have your bones dug up and put in a museum? I saw we were in the Mammoth Cave in Kentucky a few weeks ago, and there's a exhibit of an Indian. They've got an air-conditioned glass case who was crushed by a rockfall. He was mining gypsum. Dated about um, 2000 B.C. And rocks fell on him, killed him, and they found him there. They tried to bring it out, but uh, couldn't stand the outside air, so but it's left in there, and they call him Ross John. Like Ross John. In Mammoth Cave. Thousands of years old. Well, graves, of course, are underground because people have dug them and put them there. And as for houses, as for cities, the ground accumulates above them. It isn't that they are put underground. They were at the surface level and they were built and they were inhabited, but the ground accumulates. Now, you can't throw trash and garbage out in the street in front of this college. Well, you can, but you may. And <laughs> it happens sometimes. A beer truck went around the corner too fast, and the 25 beer cans flew off by some physical force on the corner, right where the dining hall is now. <laughs> and students went out to pick some of those up. But anyway, in ancient times, there was no sanitary code about throwing away rubbish of any kind and filth and garbage and refuse and whatever just chucked out of the window or door into the street. And of course, over a thousand years, a good bit could pile up. And um, also, uh, in the Near East, the commonest and cheapest building material is mud, mud brick. This um, goes to pieces, especially if a, if a building collapses and rains or something. And, the walls had to be thick because of the uh, nature of the material, and this would collapse uh, and leave a great pile of rubble. And no bulldozers, it was expensive and an awful lot of hard work to clear that away, and why should anybody do it? It's much easier to simply grade it off, smooth it off, and build again on the top. So there's about two feet, maybe, one to two feet that represent a level of habitation, and then there's a little break, and then there's a new one on top of that, you see. And the Willie adds that this has the added advantage that the new house or building that's put up is that much farther out of the dam than uh, what it was before. So, uh, and he gives an illustration, a church in London 
that was there in Roman times, the beginning of the Christian era, you have to go down 25 feet from the present day street level to get into this church. It's quite amazing. Uh, World War II, London, of course, was pretty heavily bombed, and some places that uh, they would have liked to clear for putting up modern buildings but couldn't quite get to do it before the war were bombed out. So this gave them a real chance to, to rebuild. And um, some of these places, um, they found many feet under the present-day uh, street level of the city, a temple of Mithras, Persian sun god, built and used by Roman soldiers. I think 30 feet below the present surface level of the street. It's hard to believe almost in a modern city like London, but here are people living in London and shopping in stores and riding on buses, and they don't know what's down 25, 30 feet under their feet, underground, underneath where they live. All right, now um, this explains how these things accumulate, and uh, now Willie takes up the ideal way for a city to be destroyed from the archaeologist's point of view. Mr. Tenary, what would you say is the ideal way, the nicest thing to happen to a city from the archaeologist's point of view? Yeah, well, a volcanic eruption he rates is absolutely the best, isn't this right? Like Pompeii in Italy near Naples, a volcanic eruption next to this would be thoroughly burned and looted by enemies. You see, Naples, have you ever been there? seen pictures of it in books. Two cities nearby, near the Bay of Naples, Pompeii and Herculaneum, from the um, first century after Christ, I believe. And this volcano, which is quiescent today, we're glad to say, uh, suddenly uh, blew, its, blew off steam. And molten lava, red-hot melted rock, flowed down, and a great uh, storm of flying hot ash fell down. And uh, many people perished right where they were. And this place was covered with many feet of this deposit. It was so thick that nobody bothered to go back to try to retrieve or recover anything until modern times it's been excavated the last couple hundred years. They found meals cooked on the stove, ready to eat, and hadn't been eaten yet. One place a man's body had laid, and uh, it had decomposed to nothing, but uh, it had left a perfect mold in the and the mother lava there, and they just pumped this full of the plaster press and got a new man out of it in this way, replica statue of him. But this is the ideal way because it is done suddenly. Everything that's there gets preserved, you see, and nobody has any time to take anything away. They just run for their lives if they can. And uh, when the volcanic eruption's over, it's so completely covered with um, many feet of this... Uh, lava deposit, an ash deposit that uh, discourages anybody from going back to try to dig it out. So there it remains perfectly uh, sort of encased and preserved till the field archaeologist comes around to take a hand at it. Now the next best is for enemies to destroy a place. They take what's of intrinsic value like money or gold or silver when they leave, but a lot of other stuff they leave. Not everything burns. Dishes don't burn up, for example. Pottery doesn't. And uh, so a place like this is also usually so thoroughly devastated and covered with so much uh, debris and ashes that it isn't worth the while of the inhabitants to come back to try to pick up any personal possessions, which probably would be ruined anyhow. So this is preserved uh, pretty well. 
Now then, um, uh, should we wish that uh, London or Tokyo would be destroyed by an atom bomb to give the archaeologists a chance? I'll tell you one place in the world that uh, we certainly don't hope will be destroyed, but archaeologists are just itching to get at, and that's Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem. You know, you can't tear down the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and, and so forth, but the mosque uh, of Omar that's there and all these things in order to get at what's underneath. The people there take a dim view of this sort of thing. On the other hand, there may be priceless information available underneath there. If the Arabs destroy a forest by... It's too bad and everything, but we'll go to it then. It can be found. <laughs> all right, now... Um, how does an archaeologist decide uh, where to start his work of digging? Or does he just go out and uh, maybe uh, throw some dice or something and decide to start here? How would you, Mr. How would how would you decide if you were an archaeologist? Now, Willie was an archaeologist chiefly in the Near East, although he did some work in England and Scotland, but this is true chiefly of the Near East. Iran, Iraq, Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, that part of the world, Syria. And uh, you would find something different if you would try to dig up archaeological remains in Mexico, let's say, or Arizona. But anyway, uh, here's a blister, a telltale shape of a, of a sort of a bunion bubble on the surface of the earth that has a characteristic shape that was not produced by geological forces, but by human habitation. And these are so easy to spot that it's a dead giveaway. This is a place where there was a city. Of course, there are some living cities today that are on top of one of these things, but many of them were eventually abandoned after having been inhabited for ages of time, perhaps a couple thousand years even, many hundreds of years. And um, so you uh, find one of these places and then uh, you can start to dig. Now he points out that in Egypt, which is sandy rather than clay soil, temples are lower than the ruins of surrounding houses. And this is a giveaway. Why would the uh, ruins of a temple be found at a lower level than the ruins of the houses that were nearby or around it? Well, why would it be? Mm -hmm. All right. The houses have been built, destroyed, and rebuilt, or built on pieces and rebuilt maybe 20 times. And this builds up, you see. And the temple is made of substantial material. You do something a little better for the gods than for the Egyptians. And uh, it's substantial in stone, and it stays at the same level while the ground around it rises, strange to say. And they have uh, found a number of cases of this. Uh, it's easy to find where the temple was in this way. Now, um, he also speaks of air photography and of changes in the hue of vegetation and so forth, some of which can be seen only from a certain angle or from an airplane or a balloon. Uh, this, I think, is clear enough in itself. <clears throat> and then um, certain kinds of weeds growing that have um, deep... Uh, roots that go way down in the ground and can only grow where the ground has at some previous time been broken up by digging. And they won't grow where it's just uh, the way the world originally was. And uh, this is a way of knowing. 
to the many criteria that get rid of this. Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered in a different way by dead reckoning. The glorious dynasty of Egypt, uh, far outstripping everything before and after it, was the 18th dynasty. This was the one that King Tut was a member of. And they had, the Egyptians had <clears throat> given up burying the dead in pyramids because this was uh, too obvious where the body had been put and the graves were robbed. You know, the great pyramid of Egypt, Cheops or Khufu, when they finally got in there, it took uh, modern people a couple hundred years to find a way into that. When they finally got in, they found it had already been robbed in ancient times. And the king's chamber, about halfway up the pyramid, an empty room with an alabaster casket, also empty, king's body gone and the lid gone. I have a photograph in one of the books. I'll show you this one too. But robbed, and so they quit burying the kings in pyramids. It's estimated it took 20,000 men about uh, 40 years to get uh, Cheops properly his funeral attended to. Talk about expensive funerals. But anyway, uh, they start burying them in the Valley of the Kings and cutting a, a, a uh, passageway straight back into a rock cliff. And then uh, when they got through, they cut out chambers in there. And when they got through, they covered that all over and camouflaged the entrance so that uh, it was not obvious at all where the entrance to this king's burial was. And they had found in the Valley of the Kings, west of the Nile and just south of where the pyramids are, uh, the bodies or the tombs of all of the pharaohs of the 18th dynasty except two that they couldn't find. One of those was Tutankhamun. Incidentally, uh, he was only 18 when he died, and he never would have been pharaoh except for a real smart marriage. <laughs> he was not in line for the kingship, but she was. He married her. Anyway, it's been a real love match. When they finally got in there to that, this book, God's Graves and Scholars, described this. Finally got into where the, the casket actually was. Three gold covers, one outside the other. And on top of the, where the chest of his body would be, one little flower laid there by his bride, the queen, also 18 years old, just before the tomb was sealed. as the last token of affection, one flower. And it lay there from 1300 B.C. to 1930 A.D., about and when one of the archaeologists touched it, it crumbled to dust. Now, uh, the tomb of King Tut was found by an Englishman named Howard Carter by dead reckoning. He knew there was one more, maybe two more, pharaohs of that dynasty. They must be buried in the same valley with the rest, but he, he considered this extremely probable. And by patiently poking around and hunting one more season, almost to the end of this season, he was almost ready to give up uh, as a failure, he came upon it. The only tomb of a pharaoh ever discovered that had not been extensively looted in ancient times. King Tut's tomb had been entered, but evidently the robbers had been scared away before they got into the important part. The wealth in there was fabulous. His body was not well preserved, but the wealth in the tomb was simply fabulous. The gold and the silver, just the gold value of it would make a fortune let alone the, the artistic and historical value of it. Now then, um, something about the work of a field archaeologist, really famous, I want to get, a, get ahead with this, but uh, he describes all the uh, kind of uh, 
expedition you have to have. You have to have bookkeepers and epigraphists to read ancient writing and cooks and bottle washers and diggers and so forth and foremen and basket men and cook men. I think this is all quite clear. What is bakshish? And what do you do with it? Well, today what's bakshish? Now it's like a tip, isn't it? You know what a tip stands for? To improve compass. It only took the waitress half an hour instead of an hour to bring your food after you put your order in. So you give her a tip, right? But uh, yeah, this is a reward. Now you realize that um, according to the highest standard of Geneva College Christian Ethics, it shouldn't be necessary. On the other hand, in the Near East, people are human just like we are. and. Uh, strong temptation if one of these workmen comes across something that uh, looks like it's very valuable to just slip it in his pocket and maybe he can peddle this to an antique dealer for uh, more than he can earn working for a month so they pay these men uh, approximately the value of what they find especially if it's in undamaged and unbroken condition get more backsheets for reward if it's broken they just get a very little bit or maybe nothing and this discourages theft. They know that the archaeologist or the expedition will give them as much as they can get by taking it in town and sending it to a dealer. And um, so this has built up morale quite a bit. Maybe I should offer a special uh, 10 points on a test for those that don't cheat. <laughs> of course, it would be completely irrelevant in this class. Now, uh, Grave digging. Let's see. Is this beyond uh, this is farther than we should have gone for today. Um, some of these things are technical and I'll leave you to figure them out. Uh, how can they determine the date of something by coins? Well, there was a man who walked into the British Museum with a handful of old uh, bronze coins that he had found in a place in England while he was digging something and he wanted to sell them to the British Museum he said he knew they were old because each one had stamped on it 6 B.C. <laughs> and the museum told him they weren't buying any that day. <laughs> now when coins are found in a place they prove that the place the association the complex that the coin is found in is at least as old as the date of the coin if it's a genuine coin. You find a coin of Augustus Caesar. They placed uh, certainly is uh, it, it can be as old as Augustus Caesar, but not older. If the coin is found in an undisturbed association with things, for instance, in a, in a coffin or a casket with a body that's been buried, the person wasn't buried before the time of Julius Caesar. If it has coins of Julius Caesar in the coffin. So this proves uh, a key or a clue sometimes. There were two Roman legions, all about uh, 100 A.D., that were completely annihilated by the Germans in northern Germany in the Teutoburg Forest. And uh, the Roman emperor was crushed. He said Varus, that was the name of the general. He walked around the, the palace in Rome and said, Varus, Varus, give me back my legions. And they found a 
They ordered gold coins that had been prepared against payday for the Roman army. And this was the payroll for parts of it. And this is one way that the location of that battle had been more or less determined, where they found these gold coins. Another place they found gold coins of the Roman Empire at a place in India, proving a date of some ruins on the coast of the eastern coast of India. Now, um, one thing that we might uh, note here is that where there's a, a layer cake of archaeological deposits, somebody said the Beaver County Sanitary Landfill is archaeology in the making, it's geology in the making. But anyhow, where there's a series of layers, what one fact can you be absolutely sure about to start with? What is it, Mr. Yeah. Layer on the top is the most recent, and uh, as you go down, it gets older. So in the Near East, Palestine, for example, or Syria, will be topsoil, and underneath that there will be ruins of the Byzantine period, early Middle Ages. Still underneath that of the Roman period. And underneath that of the Hellenistic or Greek period. And so on down till you get to finally to a clear virgin soil that has not been disturbed and has nothing at the very bottom of the column. And this is a given. We can start with this. What is on top is the most recent. What is at the bottom is the whole. Now there's another statement Wally makes that um, all excavation is destruction. What does that mean? Well, can you get down to layer three without destroying layer one, layer two? You see, to get to layer three, you've got to tear up the layers above it. There's no other way to get there. And when it's torn up, it's gone forever. This is what the early treasure hunters didn't know, you see. And uh, therefore, archaeology today, they sift every bit of soil through a screen, uh, the place that they expect to find anything, Every object is marked with a key number, and uh, then this is, this is um, marked in a three-dimensional diagram as to the, the level and the horizontal length and breadth of exactly where it was found. Everything is photographed, everything is examined, every bit of soil is sifted with the German jippies, and uh, finally, when they have exhausted what can be obtained from that level, the signal goes, tear it up, and it's gone forever. It'll never come back while the earth remains. We'll go down to the next level. All right, see you when. In Crete, Arthur Evans was able to restore the palace of Minas by the actual reconstruction up to the second floor part. Willie relates how at Tel El Amarna in Egypt, he with others was digging. It was the temple of Akhenaton, 14th century B.C., the monotheist king. Not a stone remained in position of the temple, and hardly a stone remained on the site. All that was found was on the surface. Six inches down, there was a rectangular bed of concrete laid as the temple's base, and below this, only sand. Limestone blocks for wall and floor had been bedded in mortar on the cement foundation. Some of this mortar adhered to the cement where the stones had been removed for use elsewhere. So stones which were not there could actually be counted. The whole surface was swept clean with rooms. Limestone blocks for a wall and floor had been bedded in mortar on the cement foundation. Some of this mortar adhered to cement and the stones had been removed for use elsewhere. So stones which were not there could actually be counted. This whole surface was swept clean with rooms. 